0: This is Positively Farming Media. Last fall, I did a whole series here on different ways to preserve our harvest. I'll link to those episodes below in the show description. One of the things that I mentioned I didn't have any experience in but was planning on dabbling with was fermentation, and I am happy to say I took the plunge and have discovered some fantastically yummy ways to preserve some of the garden goodness when I'm overrun and in a way that's great for my gut health. Fermenting foods can be a fun and rewarding way to both preserve the harvest and enhance the flavors of our garden bounty. If you're a beginner looking to get started with fermenting your own foods, I've discovered it's not hard, but there are some essential things to know. Today on Just Grow Something, we'll take a look at the key tenets behind fermenting foods, the basics of getting started, what types of equipment are necessary, and what are just nice to haves. Ready to start fermenting? Let's dig in. Hey, I'm Karen, and I started gardening 18 years ago in a small corner of my suburban backyard. When we moved to a five-acre homestead, I expanded that garden to half an acre, and I found such joy and purpose in feeding my family and friends. This newfound love for digging in the dirt and providing for others prompted my husband and I to grow our small homestead into a 40-acre market farm. When I went back to school to get my degree in horticulture, I discovered there is so much power in food, and I want to share everything I've learned with as many people as possible. On this podcast, we explore crop information, soil health, pests and diseases, plant nutrition, our own nutrition, and so much more in the world of food and gardening. So grab your garden journal and a cup of coffee and get ready to just grow something. So the weather is gorgeous here today, and I have all the windows open in my house on a very rare overcast and breezy August afternoon. So if you hear the sounds of chickens or pigs or birds in the background, just pretend we're having a conversation on my back porch listening to the farm animals and the wildlife. Grab a cup of coffee and pull up a chair next to me, okay? Quick reminder, this is the final week to sign up for fall registration of my Plan Like a Pro garden planning course or spring registration if you're in the southern hemisphere. The course takes you step by step through the garden planning method that I spent 10 years developing and that I use here in our own gardens every single year. There are pages of downloads, hours of video, a private community where you can ask questions and share ideas. It's self-paced and you have access for as long as I continue the course, which means getting all the updates I make along the way as soon as I make those changes. Go to justgrowsomethingpodcast.com slash plan to get all the details and I will put that link in the show description below. Let's just start this conversation by saying fermenting is an ancient preservation method. It has been used for centuries, for thousands of years, literally. While it is generally safe and can be done properly with zero experience and only basic instructions, I am not an expert. I am just sharing with you what I've learned in my very brief journey in fermenting. So if you have any questions or concerns, I'm going to link to all kinds of references and resources in the show notes so that you have access to the same learning resources and tools that I have been using. If you are not on my email list and you want to have these resources automatically sent to you when they're posted with each episode, just head to my website and get signed up and you will get these links in your inbox every week so it's super easy to find and you don't have to remember to go and write down a link. So let's start by answering the question, what is fermentation? Fermentation is a natural process where microorganisms like bacteria, um, yeasts, or molds break down sugars and carbohydrates in our food, converting them into acids or alcohol or gases. Now, this process not only preserves that food, but it also adds very unique flavors and enhances the nutritional benefits of that food. So at its core, These microorganisms are sort of pre-digesting our foods, which is increasing the availability of those nutrients to our system. So some of the key health benefits of consuming fermented foods include improved digestion. Fermentation breaks down complex carbohydrates and proteins into simpler forms, which makes them easier to digest. It also produces enzymes that aid in digestion and that promote a healthy gut environment. Fermented foods are very rich in probiotics. Those are those beneficial live bacteria that support our gut health. These help maintain a balanced gut microbiome, which is linked to improved digestion, immune function, and mental health. We talked about the gut-brain connection back on a Focal Point Friday episode about the link between ultra-processed foods and mental health. A significant portion of our immune system is located in the gut. So probiotics that are found in fermented foods can help manage our immune response and enhance our body's ability to fight off infections and diseases. Now, fermentation can also increase the bioavailability of certain nutrients in our foods, like vitamins and minerals and antioxidants, which makes them more accessible to us in the body. These are things our modern diets are often definitely lacking. And studies have shown a connection between eating fermented foods and reduced inflammation. Some fermented foods contain anti-inflammatory compounds and those probiotics, again, that may help reduce inflammation in the body. Now, much of this is tied to fermented dairy products like yogurt and kefir, but to a lesser extent, certain fermented vegetables also carry these benefits. So even though we're primarily talking about vegetables today, fermented dairy products are also very beneficial. It is important to note that the health benefits of fermented foods can vary depending on what type of food it is that we're fermenting and the fermenting process that we are using. Of course, individually, we are all gonna respond to fermented foods differently, so it's essential. Listen to your body, figure out which ones work for you. Some people tend to jump into fermented foods very quickly, trying to get all of these health benefits from them, but it can often disrupt your digestion a little bit. So what I have done is started with small servings to just sort of allow my digestive system to adjust. And then I slowly added more and more fermented foods each week so if you have specific health concerns or conditions it's always a good idea to consult with your professional like a registered dietitian or somebody who is very well versed in these types of things before making any kind of a significant change to your diet. So as a beginner, I found it was best to start with very simple fermenting recipes. Sauerkraut, kimchi, pickles, these are all very popular beginner friendly choices. They generally have a shorter fermentation time and they require next to nothing in the way of equipment. So we get that sort of instant gratification of that short fermenting without any type of large commitment when it comes to buying things. Now when we're talking about our equipment, the first thing is just to make sure that when we're working with ferments, all of our utensils, our containers, our hands, all of that is clean before we start the fermentation process. Keeping these sort of sanitary conditions is going to help the beneficial microorganisms thrive and it's going to help prevent contamination from the ones that we don't want around. The other thing that I'm going to recommend here is to choose fresh, organic produce when you can, whether that's coming out of your garden or it's coming from the farmer's market or from a neighbor's garden, whatever. With canning and other types of preservation, we know that using those high-quality ingredients leads to a higher-quality result, and fermentation is no different from that. But even more so when we're using fresh and organic vegetables, they are going to contain more of those beneficial microorganisms because, you know, those chemicals that are used in agriculture and in gardening are going to kill off all the good bugs with the bad bugs. And we want those good bugs. We want to encourage them to flourish. So choose non-sprayed veggies when you're going for fermenting. And then just remember when you're getting started that patience is key here. Fermentation is not an instant process. It takes time for the flavors to develop. So depending on the food and depending on the ambient temperature of where you're storing your ferment, it can take anywhere from just a couple of days to several weeks. So you need to be patient and allow the process to complete before you decide that maybe fermentation isn't for you. You're also going to want to be available to monitor the fermentation process as it goes. You're going to want to check on it regularly just to ensure that everything is going smoothly. So I have found keeping them handy in just my kitchen cupboard makes it very easy for me to check on them frequently to keep an eye out for things like mold or any kind of off smells or any kind of sliminess, which could indicate that it's spoiling. So if you encounter any of these, ditch that sucker into the compost pile and then just start all over again. I have found it helpful to have image resources available just to be sure that what I'm seeing is a good bacteria or a good yeast and not a bad one. After a few tries, I've begun to be able to sort of assess these things myself, just like any with new, any new skill, it's going to take some practice. So having a visual reference handy will make you more confident that you're not planning on serving your family something that's going to like taste gross or make them sick. So just Google some images of what, you know, the proper fermentation process looks like and you should be able to find some images of the good versus the bad. And I know we're talking the basics here, and the basics as far as equipment is really all you're going to need for some of the more simple, fast fermenting batches. But for things that require longer aging, you might also consider using airlocks. These things are going to help the gases to escape while preventing any oxygen or contaminants from getting into the container. So I'll talk about these a little bit as we get into the actual process of fermenting. I've found that having a couple of little extra tools have helped make fermenting a a little bit more foolproof as I have learned the process and as I've started experimenting. Now, two things that we want to consider before we get started is storage of our ferments during the actual fermentation and then storage after the fermentation is complete. So understand that different types of ferments like different conditions while they are fermenting. So vegetables typically prefer something around 65 to 70 Fahrenheit. But things like kombucha, which is a ferment, likes, you know, 70 to 75 Fahrenheit. And then if you've ever done sourdough starter, you know that it likes it a little bit warmer for the yeast component, closer to 80 Fahrenheit, but cooler for the bacteria, closer to 70. And then even cooler still for it to be in sort of a state like a refrigerator temperature. So be prepared with a space like a dark cupboard or a closet or some other area where your ferments can sit undisturbed with as little light as possible. This also may mean that you need different spaces for different ferments because bacteria like to travel. So if you don't want your kombucha to taste like your sauerkraut, then you may need to keep them in separate spaces. I've done lots of vegetables next to each other, but when I was also doing my own apple scrap vinegar or apple cider vinegar right alongside my kombucha, I noticed things got a little off with the the vinegar. I think the scoby jumped ship into the vinegar. So If you start to really get into this, just be aware that you may need a little bit of space to do multiple ferments at once. But if you're just doing a few jars of veggies, a shelf in my kitchen cabinet has worked just fine. And then we need to understand our storage after fermentation. So Properly stored fermented foods can last for several months without too much fuss, just putting them in a cool space. When we're storing them, we're just slowing down the fermentation process to a crawl with cold temperatures. And while this is an ancient way to store food, and it's been used for generations, and it is a great way to give us access to nutritious and probiotic-rich vegetables during the time of the year when we really don't have fresh available to us. Storing those fermented foods for the long term requires a little bit of care just to maintain the quality but also the food safety. So, Refrigeration, number one, is probably the most common way to store fermented foods now, and it's actually probably the safest. Once you've gotten your ferment to its desired level of fermentation, how you like it, you're just going to transfer it into a different, clean, airtight container and stick it in the fridge. Those cold temperatures are going to slow down that fermentation process, and that's going to extend the shelf life of the food. And most of them are going to last for several months in the refrigerator. But if you're fermenting a lot of foods, you can very quickly run out of space in the fridge. I have a whole shelf on my refrigerator door that is full of fermented foods. If you don't want to have to have a second fridge for your ferments, there are other options. The first one of those being root cellaring. If you have an access to a root cellar or you just have a cool dark and slightly humid storage area like a basement or even an insulated garage if you're in an area where you won't get freezing temperatures in your garage, you can store fermented vegetables in ceramic crocks or large glass jars for longer storage. In in this instance, the larger containers for storage might be a little bit better because it preserves the food longer, but the idea is just to cover the crock or whatever you're using to store it in with enough brine to completely cover the food and then keep it in any area that is under 50 Fahrenheit, but above freezing. You can keep your ferments like this for an extended period of time, like a year. Um, You can also, instead of using a crock, there are water sealed crocks. Um, You can use airlocks on glass jars. Any of these things are an option so long as you can keep it cool and you can keep it under the brine. Another method is through canning. Now, if we're heating up the pickles or our sauerkraut or whatever it is to can it for storage, then we're obviously killing off many of the beneficial biota. But if we need longer term storage, of low-acid foods that we are pulling out of our garden that would normally need to be pressure canned, fermenting them first is a great way to get that pH down to where they can simply be water bath canned for storage. In this instance, you're going to need to pick up some pH test strips to be sure that you ferment your foods to below a pH of 4.6, but that then makes them safe to water bath can. And you can follow the USDA guidelines for boiling water canning And I will link to the National Center for Home Food Preservation website that has all of those guidelines. So if you have a ton of cabbage and you've got no good cold storage to keep it in, if you like sauerkraut, ferment some big old batches of sauerkraut and get them down to the proper acidity level, and then you can can those babies up and they are now shelf-stable. Now, for some fermented foods like yogurt or kefir— the dairy ones can be frozen to prolong their shelf life. I mean, that's, again, stop the fermentation process. And so it's going to preserve the food quality. Uh, I wouldn't recommend doing this with any others, but I think the dairy ones seem to do okay with this. And then other fermented foods like, you know, tempeh or some types of salami, you can also further preserve those by drying them. But just remember that the shelf life of the fermented foods is going to vary depending on the type of the ferment, what ingredients you're using and and the storage conditions. So you're going to regularly want to check for any types of signs of spoilage, mold, off smell, slimliness any of those types of things. And again, if you notice any of those issues, just like during the fermentation process, after the fermentation process, if you see this, you just want to get rid of it, toss it in the compost pile, whatever. So after the break, we're going to talk about the types of salt used in fermenting, the steps to create your first fermented vegetables, and what types of equipment you should have on hand, along with a few that I've found have made the process just a little bit easier. I'll be right back. Okay, let's talk salt. Now, I'm not going to discuss fermenting with starter cultures like whey. I have no experience in that yet, but I will update that if and when I dig into it. We're talking lacto-fermented veggies here without starter cultures, and that means salt. Salt is the most crucial component of most ferments. It not only enhances the flavors of what we're fermenting, but it also enhances the texture because it's hardening the pectin in the cells of the vegetables. But most importantly, salt is going to inhibit the growth of the harmful bacteria while encouraging the lactic acid bacteria that is responsible for the benefits that we're looking for here. (music) Lactic acid bacteria are anaerobic, which means they don't need oxygen while their nasty competitors, like bacteria and fungi, do. So the purpose of the salt is to create a nice brine where all the good bacteria can do their good work, undisturbed by the bad buggies. It also inhibits yeast growth, which would break down the sugars in our veggies into alcohol instead of lactic acid, which, of course, is a whole different kind of ferment. The other thing to think about is that the right salt to water ratio is what is essential for proper fermentation. So a common ratio is two to three percent of salt to the weight of the vegetables that we're fermenting. The other component to this is using the right salt and the right water. So let's discuss salt options. Land salts like rock salts or Himalayan salts are great. They're usually finely ground, which works great for creating a brine and they have a great mineral content. Sea salts also have great minerals and other micronutrients that are made more available to us through the fermentation process. Sea salt has a higher moisture content, which means they're generally more coarse. So sometimes this can affect how much brine you get initially or how much you know elbow grease it takes to get you to the brine. But you can always just grind it up and make it easier to work with. Kosher pickling salt sounds like exactly what you would want to use for fermenting since essentially we are pickling these veggies. And the flaked crystals of kosher salt do have more surface area to be able to draw out more liquid from what it is that we're fermenting. This is the salt that I tend to use for most of my ferments. Just be aware that not all kosher pickling salts are the same. It is still a refined product. So it's been processed through dehydration and then it's been treated with carbon dioxide and such. But there are some brands that then add anti-caking agents to their salt. So be sure that you look at the label to be sure that the only ingredient listed is salt. So if you can use an unrefined land or sea salt, great. If not, go for the kosher salt and just be sure that it doesn't have any caking agents in it. And then there is iodized salt, our common table salt. It is a very refined salt that has likely had all of the minerals leached out of it, so we don't get those benefits. And then you have the addition of iodine. It is possible that the addition of this iodine could not only inhibit the fermentation process, but it can also cause an off color to our final product. So for these reasons, I stay away from refined iodized table salts and I stick to the first three that I mentioned. Now, not all ferments are going to require water to create a brine. So sauerkraut, for example, uses only the salt and it creates its own brine. But if you're doing things like cucumber pickles or fermented carrots, which is one of my favorite snacks, by the way, then you will need to make a brine. It's important to use the best water that you can, preferably spring water. Our tap water is chlorinated and that can prevent the growth of the good bacteria we're going for. So if you don't have access to a good unchlorinated spring water, then you'll need to boil your tap water first and then let it fully cool before using it for your brine. Now essentially for the basic, basic fermentation, all you need is a container, the proper salt and maybe water, primary and secondary followers await and a cover. Now, of course, you'll need things to cut or shred or whatever, but I'm assuming you have all that stuff in your kitchen already. Just be sure as your ferments begin their process that you're using non-reactive utensils and containers. So no aluminum, no copper, no cast iron, or low grade stainless steel. We don't want metals leaching into our ferments when they start to acidify. So stick to things like glass, wood, silicone, and high grade stainless steel. So let's start with containers. For fermentation containers, you can use stoneware crocks or you can use glassware. I use wide-mouthed mason jars. I'm a canner, so it's something I have a lot of. For larger batches of ferments, I do plan on getting some stoneware crocks, but those can be pretty pricey these days. So glassware is where it's at for me right now, and I have half-gallon-sized mason jars that I use for larger batches of ferments. Now, we already talked about the salt and the water. So let's talk about those last four, the two types of followers, the weight and the cover. So the primary follower, right? This is just something that you are going to use as a barrier between the air and your brine. It can be a piece of plastic wrap, um, cheesecloth, a piece of silicone, even a cabbage leaf or a grape leaf. So when I make sauerkraut, I have... Uh, a leaf that I leave unshredded and I place it on top of the shredded ones inside my glass jar and it acts like a blanket between the shredded cabbage and the air. So whatever thing that you are using, this is the primary follower. It is just a blanket between whatever you're fermenting and the air above. And then you have a secondary follower, which is exactly what it sounds like. It is a second thing that you are going to nestle over top of the primary follower and the contents that are beneath it just to sort of keep it pressed down. We don't want anything floating up above the brine because it can spoil. You can use a plate that fits inside your container. You can use a piece of hardwood that's been cut to size. Anything that's going to trap that primary follower and the other contents under the brine. And then you need a weight. This is going to keep your secondary follower in place when the fermentation process starts to cause the carbon dioxide to bubble up. So if your followers are just sort of floating there on the surface and the fermentation action really gets going, it can bounce the followers up enough for some of your vegetables that you're trying to ferment to float up and out. So this exposes it to the air and that can cause spoilage. Plus, The more weight you have, the better able you are to keep the brine contained in the veggies and not flowing up and over the edge of your jar or your crock during this sort of bubbling process. Any heavy, sanitized, non-reactive item can do the trick. It can even be like a a large river stone or river rock or something. I have a glass weight that came with a kit that my lovely sister-in-law got me for Christmas last year, and it works beautifully well. So I'll use a cabbage leaf as my primary, and then maybe a small plate to cover that completely while pressing down with the glass weight on top. Now another method that I use with smaller containers is to just use a Ziploc bag as a combination secondary follower and weight. So you can put your primary follower in the jar, in this case, we'll say my cabbage leaf, right? And then you put a Ziploc bag in place over top of that completely covering the cabbage leaf. And then you fill that bag with brine until it completely fills the void and it weighs everything down at the same time. It works phenomenally well in smaller mason jars when I'm not making a big batch of something. None of this is super technical. We just want to make sure that anything that we have that's supposed to be in the brine stays in the brine. However you manage to do that in a non-reactive way is completely up to you. And then finally, we need something... To cover our jar or our crock that allows the CO2 and the lactic acid gases to escape while keeping oxygen and any other contaminants out. So, initially, I just put my mason jar lids on and then I would turn it back one turn so there was enough of a gap to allow gases to escape out of that lid. It was perfectly fine. But the kit my sister-in-law sent me also included some lovely airlock lids that screw right onto the mason jars. So I just put them in place and it allows the gases to escape without letting anything else in. It's easy peasy. You can also use the ones that are intended for making wine that have water in them, which also do the trick. But you would need to modify your canning lids to accommodate those, or you can buy ones that are already retrofitted. So if you're going to go the budget route when getting started like me, just put a lid on your ferment and then loosen it up just enough to let the gases escape out and call it good. Now, of course, there are all kinds of extra things that you can get that may not be necessary, but are those sort of nice to haves, like the airlocks I referred to. There's wooden tampers. There are fancy slicing and shredding tools, stone crocks, pH test strips, all those things. But we're talking about getting started with the basics And so we'll just stick with those and get into the actual process itself, which is surprisingly simple. Vegetables that have plenty of liquid already in them, like cabbage, or when making relishes, chutneys, and salsas, you will use nothing but salt, and the vegetable itself is going to create the brine. So you will rinse the vegetables in cool water and you will prepare them according to whatever recipe you have. Usually this involves slicing or shredding. And then you're going to transfer them to a large bowl. Add half of the salt that the recipe calls for and then with your hands you are going to massage it in. You're going to do this like you're kneading bread dough. And then taste it. You should be able to taste the salt But it should not be overwhelming. If it's not salty enough, then you can continue to add a little bit of salt at a time, massaging it in as you go until it tastes to your liking. So it should taste really nice while it's fresh because that taste is only going to be enhanced once you actually start the fermentation process. Now, the vegetables that you are kneading are very quickly going to look sort of wet and limp. This is a good thing depending on the amount of moisture that is in the vegetable and how hard you are doing this, some amount of liquid is going to start to pool in the bottom of your bowl. This is good. If you've put in a really good effort and you don't see a whole lot of brine in there, then you can just let the vegetables stand covered on the counter for about 45 minutes and then repeat the process. Once you've done this, then you're going to put your vegetables into your crock or your jar, whatever you're going to use to ferment in. Press down the vegetables with your fist, or this is where one of those wooden tampers comes in handy, and that's going to release even more brine. Don't be gentle with this. Really shove those vegetables down into the bottom of your crock or your jar. There's going to be some brine visible on top of the vegetables when you press them down. Don't worry if this brine sort of disappears when you release the pressure. If you can at least see it coming up over top while you're pressing down, then that's enough. If you don't, then put them back in the bowl again and massage again until you get enough of that brine released. And then you're going to pack the vegetables down into your crock or your jar. You want to leave enough headspace for you to be able to put in your followers and your weights. So if you're going to like a large crock, it's probably about four inches. If you're using a mason jar, it's about three inches or so. And then go ahead and use your primary follower. Again, in this instance, I usually use a cabbage leaf um, or use a bit of plastic wrap and then put your secondary follower and your weight on top of that. That's it. That's all you need to do. At this point, you are going to set aside your jar or your crock Typically, you want to put it on top of something. I usually put it on top of a small plate and then put it somewhere out of direct sunlight in a cool-ish area. Again, somewhere between 55 and 75 will work. The cooler side is probably a little bit better. And then you're going to start the fermentation process. Whatever recipe you're following is going to tell you approximately how long it takes for this to be completed. You want to check daily to make sure that your vegetables are still submerged under the brine. Press down on them as you needed to get the the brine back up to the surface again. Now, you might see some scum on the top. It's generally harmless. Again, Google those images to see what it is that you might be looking for. If you see mold, you want to get the mold off of the top. That's not going to ruin your whole batch, but you want to get it out of there so it doesn't continue to multiply. And this is where you want to make sure that you are using non-reactive utensils, okay? Because we're going to start tasting these things. This is how you know your ferment is done. It's entirely up to taste. You're going to look for the telltale signs that the fermentation process has begun, which is indicated by, like, the bubbling of the gases in the brine. And then after a few days, just start taste testing. With things like sauerkraut, the color is going to change. It should smell a little sour. And the texture to me, should still be firm, not really soft, certainly not slimy. And then the flavor should just be to your liking. You know, when it tastes how you like it, which may require a little experimenting over a few batches, then you just transfer the veggies to their final home to stop the fermentation process and just enjoy. Now, For things that need a little bit of help in the brine area, like cucumber pickles and other garden vegetables, you're going to need to add water. The rule here is still the same. You want to keep the veggies submerged at all times. The difference here is that you'll create the brine instead of forcing the brine from the veggies. And there are general sort of guidelines when it comes to the brine ratio. So unless you have a very specific recipe that you are following that indicates something different, a basic brine is about a half a cup of salt per gallon of water. For cucumbers, you can increase that to three quarters of a cup of salt to a gallon of water. And then for kimchi, which we're not going to go into because I have not done kimchi yet, but I do know that you actually increase that salt to a full cup of salt to a gallon of water. And then essentially the process is going to be the same. You prepare the saltwater brine ahead of time. And then, of course, you rinse the veggies in cold water and you prepare them however your recipe calls for. In most instances, it's diced or it's sliced or whatever. You're going to toss the vegetables together and any spices, if there is a recipe that involves spices, in a large bowl, mix them together, and then you're going to pack the veggies into your crock or your jar first, leaving plenty of headspace so that there's room and then pour in enough brine to cover your vegetables completely. So if you're in a jar, this might come up really close to the rim. Make sure that you leave yourself some space. So you don't have a bunch of stuff spilling over the outside. It's going to take some practice and then hang on to any of the leftover brine and put it in the fridge. I'll tell you why here in a second. Once you've got your vegetables covered with your brine then you're going to place you know your grape leaf your cabbage leaf or you know any other primary follower that you're going to use on top add your secondary follower and your your weight to hold everything in place Especially if you're using a crock. So if you're using a jar, um, a mason jar that's got those sort of shoulders on them, a lot of the time you're not going to have to use as much in the way of followers or weights because the vegetables are going to be wedged up underneath there. Again, just make sure that everything is staying below the brine and then go ahead and put your covering on there. Set it aside on a baking sheet or on a towel or on a plate somewhere out of the way. And the towel or the plate of the baking sheet is there just in case that bubbling really starts to kind of go crazy and you do end up with some spillage of the brine over top. And then just go ahead and ferment for the time that's indicated in your recipe. Again, you're going to have to monitor the brine level. And this is where that saving of the brine in the refrigerator comes in handy because... If you need to top it off, you have the brine already created. You just want to make sure that those veggies are always submerged. And again, if you see scum or anything on top, you can go ahead and scoop it out. You don't want to have any of the veggies peeking up out of the brine because they are very quickly going to get soft and spoil. So if you see anything, even a teeny tiny bit out of the brine, make sure that you use a non-reactive utensil to either poke it back under, or if it started to get soft or anything, then just pull it out and make sure the rest of them stay underneath. And again, as these vegetables ferment, they are going to start to lose their really bright color. The brine is going to start to get cloudy. And this is when you just start taste testing. They are ready whenever it is pleasantly tasting to you. You know, if they're pickly, they they won't have that same strong acidity as a vinegar pickle. Um, you know, but... but The the taste should be what you are looking for in a pickle. And again, this very well may require some, you know, experimentation by you over the course of several attempts just to find what it is that you like as far as the flavor and texture of your fermented vegetables. In reality, fermenting is a simple process. The main things to worry yourself with is the cleanliness and keeping the veggies submerged under the brine to stave off any of the yucky stuff. I've done sauerkraut. I've done carrots and radishes. I did a shredded carrot and radish seed pod salad. But by far, my favorite has been fermented garlic. I did one big batch, and I stored half of it in honey, which has made it delightfully complex. And then the other half of the batch, I transferred into some leftover brine from my German pickle recipe and stored them in the refrigerator. And they are a fabulous addition to anything that calls for pickles or garlic. Have fun with it. Get the basics down and then start experimenting with flavors. There is a world of possibilities out there with what you can do with fermented foods. When I started canning, I used the Ball Blue Book of Preserving, which became my canning Bible, and I still reference it to this day. When I started fermenting, I used the book Fermented Vegetables by Kirsten and Christopher Schocke. It has step-by-step instructions and a ton of recipes for fermenting just about anything and everything and i swear by it i will leave a link to that book plus the kit that my sister-in-law got me and all the references and all the resources in today's show notes so you can start your fermenting journey too until next time my gardening friends keep on cultivating that dream garden and we'll talk again soon you just finished another episode of the just grow something podcast for more information about today's topic, go to justgrowsomethingpodcast.com where you can find all the episodes, show notes, articles, courses, newsletter sign up and more. Or spring registration if you're a gardening friend from down under. I'm so sorry. We're not going to do that. That was awful. That goes into the outtakes. Ooh. Now, not all ferments are going to require water. Require Let's, quarter is not a word. I'd also love for you to head to Facebook and join our gardening community in the Just Grow Something Gardening Friends Facebook group. Until next time, my gardening friends, keep learning and keep growing.